Good afternoon and welcome to Mediascope, the programme for and about the public relations, event management and journalism industries. I'm Ellen Gunning from the Global Institute for Public Relations and you're very welcome to the programme. Now on this week's show I'm chatting with Ono Brin TD about his new book Defects, Living with the Legacy of the Celtic Tiger and it looks at the human, financial and societal impact I suppose of really badly built homes. Thanks very much for taking my call Deputy. Thanks for having me Ellen. Now let me ask you, you're in the doll, you write for media, why a book? Um, I, I suppose uh, because it's 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 such a, a an important subject. It takes a, a book length um, treatment. Um, a lot of the book details the very personal testimonies of six families uh, who I interviewed uh, uh, during the research to kind of talk through their own experience uh, of the living with defects. But also, I wanted to chart the history of how we ended up with such a weak building control and enforcement regime that uh, was in place by the 1990s who was responsible, uh, the politicians, uh, the developers, but also then to try and set out some solutions to how how we can make sure uh, as we go back into hopefully what's going to be another significant increase in building, particularly social and affordable homes, how we can make sure these types of things never happen again. So uh, uh, to do all of that, it really does take a book-length treatment. Well, I, I have to tell you, I had I thought the biggest benefit of the book was that I had forgotten how absolutely furious I was until I started reading the book and I could feel the veins in my neck starting to pop again. It really, I think everybody who, everybody has a home. So anybody who has ever aspired to have a home or bought a home really feels for the people who are caught in the position they were in. Your book opens with um, an, an overture about Stephanie Meehan and just for the benefit of listeners, Stephanie Meehan and... Her two children and her partner, Fiacre Daly, were caught up in the whole Priory Hall debacle and her partner actually took his life. And then the issue was resolved within a couple of months of him dying, which was doubly tragic. Uh, absolutely. And, and Stephanie is, is one of the people who I interviewed for the book. Um, and you know, I, I, I open uh, uh, the, the book with Stephanie telling the story of discovering Fiacre's uh, uh, body on a very, very tragic morning. And really, I suppose it's to show that this isn't just about money, um, although obviously the financial cost of remediating homes is huge. The families in Priory Hall uh, uh, were evacuated and lived in temporary accommodation for two years. Uh, For much of that time, they were paying mortgages on homes that they couldn't live in that were deemed by a court uh, to be unsafe for habitation. Uh, uh, Obviously, they were all eventually uh, uh, resettled in, in new homes, but it actually took Fiacre Daly's death um, up until that point, the then Minister for Environment, Phil Hogan, refused to meet the families. Uh, repeatedly, he was asked by the families' campaign group and by opposition TDs, and he stuck to the very uh, rigid line that he had no legal power in this matter, and therefore it was really a matter for Dublin City Council and the courts. And it was only after Fiacre's tragic death um, when Stephanie wrote a really, really powerful letter to Enda Kenny, the then Taoiseach, which was subsequently published that the government were effectively shamed into meeting the families. Uh, and what happened immediately after that, of course, is within a matter of weeks, a resolution was found that, that unblocked the two years of trauma for those families. Uh, and while resolutions were found that meant people were able to, to start lives again, uh, that wasn't possible, of course, for, for Stephanie and her two children, because by that stage, uh, Fia could be dead. And do you think that the lack of political action, and I'm not talking about any political party at all, but that the lack of political action generally was because no TD or senator was ever in danger of losing their homes. This didn't affect 
anyone who was in the doll. So it wasn't as close to them as it was to the people who were affected by the issue. Now, I know a lot of issues aren't, but there's something about people's homes that we all get, that we all have an instant connection to it. Why did politicians at the time miss that connection? I, I don't genuinely don't think that was what the problem was. The okay. problem was government wanted to uh, limit its exposure to the ultimate cost of, of these defects. Uh, and therefore, it took this very rigid line. And it's a line that has continued since in various other disputes uh, that defects are a private matter between the, the developer and the purchaser of a home. Uh, and the state has no legal responsibility or liability. Now, clearly, that's not the case, because one of the things I spend quite a lot of time in, in defects uh, exploring is what was the role of the state. So the state put in place the light-touch regulatory regime that allowed road builders and, and uh, uh, block manufacturers and architects to do the kind of things they did during the County Tiger. And in fact, not only did the state put that light-touch regulatory regime in place, they did so against a lot of advice uh, from many independent bodies, such as the Law Reform Commission uh, or the... Uh, uh, Justice King's uh, inquiry into the Stardust Fire, or indeed many opposition politicians, all of whom argued for a much stronger and more independent uh, system for overseeing the construction of homes. So the state has that responsibility, but the reason why then, as now, the state has been reluctant to get involved until it's shamed into doing so is really to limit its liability, and in particular its financial liability. Now, I can understand that because we as citizens ultimately end up paying for these rogue builders. The, the self-certifying that the builders did, I found myself with a number of questions and I'll just bounce them out if you don't mind because definitely this is your area of expertise and not mine. There was a light touch regime which allowed builders to self-certify and say, in effect, what I have built meets the plans that I told you they would meet. So this is the walls are X thickness. There's this amount of insulation. There's this amount of wiring. You know, everything I said I would do, I did. Why were they not prosecuted for making false returns at a minimum? I mean, they obviously, if they said everything is hunky-dory and it wasn't, why was there no comeback against them? Absolutely, because the, the, the way in which the, the system is set up makes it virtually impossible to prove who actually was responsible for those defects. Um, so there have been a number of attempts to have these matters addressed in the courts, uh, and to the very best of my knowledge, none of them have ever resulted in a prosecution. Because what happens is is the architect complain, can blame the builder, the builder can blame the subcontractor, the subcontractor can blame individual members of staff, and it goes round in a circle. Uh, I thought it was time. ultimately the job of the quantity surveyor. Am I wrong? Well, the, the problem is pre-2014, so uh, before the, the, the change to the certification regime uh, that was introduced by Phil Hogan, the difficulty is, is in, in real terms, it is virtually impossible to prove who was responsible. And that was pointed out by the Law Reform Commission in, in a really important report in 1977, where they urged government to introduce legislation to place a legal liability on builders and developers to de develop uh, or construct in accordance with the law. If government in the 70s uh, had listened to the Law Reform Commission and enacted the legislation that the Law Reform Commission went on to, to actually publish in 1982, this would be very simple because the builder who builds a house will be legally liable. Unfortunately, under pressure from industry, both the construction industry, but also an organisation that represented uh, architects, uh, uh, surveyors and engineers at the time, government not only uh, refused to enact the uh, recommendations of the Law Reform Commission's 1977 report, they also refused to introduce uh, the draft building control regime uh, that was produced by the then Department of Environment in 1976. 
So, the so where, does this self-certification hole that they all fall into apply to everything? So if you're a self-employed person and you uh, self-certify in effect your tax returns, but you say that actually, I'm not sure, it wasn't really me. I said that that was the amount of tax that I was liable to pay, but actually I had an accountant in the middle and then I had a bookkeeper who did something and I'm not ultimately responsible and nobody can chase me. Do you know what I mean? Does it only apply to building or does it apply to everything that is self-declared no, no, or self-certified? You're, you're, you're absolutely right. So, so with anything else, um, uh, the, the, the liability is very, very clear. The, the only area where you have this, and it still is the case today to some extent, the only area where you have such a, a, a legal grey area as to who was ultimately responsible is in construction. Uh, and the frightening thing about it is this, is that you know if you go out today and you buy anything from a cup of coffee to a car, uh, and if you take it home and it's defective, then it's very simple. You take it back to where you bought it from and you get a refund or you get a replacement. The only purchase where that principle does not apply is the single biggest purchase of a person's life or, or of a, a couple's life, which is their family home. And the idea that uh, the biggest purchase of your life actually has the weakest level of consumer protection is appalling. And that was the case before the Phil Hogan reforms of 2014. Uh, but it's my contention, and I make this argument very strong in the book, that it's still the case today. Uh, because if you buy a house today, and if you find uh, that there are significant defects, while you are able to point to an assigned certifier who will have inspected and certified the work has been done properly, the difficulty is you still have to go to court to seek redress. Uh, and the legal, and the legal redress to you is no better today than it was pre-2014. Sorry for cross time, but what about when you... Most people don't have money in their back pockets to buy their homes, as you say. It's their biggest investment in their life. So you go into a bank or a building society or whatever and you say, this is what I earn. I want to take a loan for the next 20 years or 30 years. And they insist that somebody goes out and looks at the house and guarantees them that what they are lending their money against is a good property. So how come the person, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've heard these questions a million times before, but how no, come no, these are, these are really I take, so I take a mortgage and I've paid somebody to come out and inspect the house and they usually say something like, you know, the banisters are a little bit wobbly and they'll yeah. find something small, the back window, kitchen window isn't open and properly, but other than that, it's a good and a holy and a wholesome house and you should buy it. How come they're not responsible? Because they, they can't inspect uh, the property uh, to such an extent that they can identify potential future defects. So if you think about the, the, the three most common defects these days, the first is a lack of fire stopping and fire protection. Well, you can't see those from a visual inspection of the house because they're internal to the property. Uh, and of course, the walls have been constructed and plastered, so they're not visible uh, to those inspections. Okay. Nor, nor are they visible to the inspections, for example, that your own surveyor will do uh, when you buy the house. Likewise, water ingress, that's where water seeps into the property and can, say, damage uh, balconies or, or damage the structural integrity. That takes many years uh, 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 to uh, reveal itself. Or you look at pyrite or mica in the block that's affecting so many families in Donegal and Mayo and Clare and mm-hmm. Sligo and Limerick. Again, that doesn't manifest itself uh, until many years later. In fact, one of the triggers of, of the uh, damage to homes in Donegal and Mayo was a particularly cold winter uh, that triggered the, the mica and pyrite inside the block and started uh, uh, to, to lead to cracks. So it's actually not possible. And that's why, of course, we need an independent inspection regime during construction itself. So, for example, 
if you're building your own home in Belfast, um, Belfast City Council's building control section will independently inspect and certify that property four or five, maybe six times during construction. And that's whether it's an individual self-build or, or an estate house. Uh, uh, pre-2014, down here, um, <clears throat> as you say, complete self-certification uh, by the developer. Post-2014, the developer employs an assigned certifier, very often working in the same architectural practice as the architects that the developer has, has brought on board for the project. They will inspect at various stages of construction, and they will uh, submit certificates of compliance to the local authority, a slightly better version of self-certification. Janie Mack, it's even, a slight improvement, but, but not but, a huge but, amount. But, Let but, me just take a very quick commercial break, and I'll be back to you right after this. You're listening to The Mediascope Show with Ellen Gunning on 103.2. Dublin City FM. Welcome back. I'm chatting with Owen O'Brien TD about his book, which is called Defects, Living with the Legacy of the Celtic Tiger. And it's all about the appalling building regime we have in this country. Owen, I'm thoroughly enjoying this chat. Sorry for interrupting you there. You were saying in Belfast, you, you would always have had somebody to independently inspect the parts of the house that nobody could see. So let me bring you back to... What the banks then, because um, I have a chip about the banks and how they chased people as well, harangued them, harassed them, murdered them uh, for not paying a, a mortgage on a property that was no use. The, the banks insist that you get this uh, certificate, which in theory should be covering their asses. So how come they then sort of overlook the um, certification that they've been given from an independent person who says this is a good house, you should loan against it? and go after the people that they know are in a home that now doesn't have the value. Yeah, and, and again, you know, we, we started talking about the Priory Hall, and, and even after those families had to be evacuated from their homes, uh, mortgages were still being paid. Mm. Uh, if you talk to families, for example, in Donegal or Mayo or, or the other western seaboard counties affected by defective block, uh, they're still paying mortgages on homes which actually currently have no value at all. Uh, despite the fact that in many instances families will have you know paid two hundred, three hundred thousand plus interest, uh, uh, and they the still need somewhere to live in the meantime. And yeah, I, I'm or, very or, conscious that with the story you were telling about Stephanie Meehan, at one stage she said, or you reported, I can't remember, that her partner Fiocra Daly was receiving daily phone calls from the bank saying, "Where's our money? You owe us money." I mean, that's appalling. Yeah, now thankfully there have been some improvements to the, uh, to the uh, uh, way in which the banks operate in terms of regulation by the central bank. Um, so those types of issues excuse me, are less of an issue today. But, but the real issue, however, is, again, if you take uh, the defective block, uh, uh, Mike and Pyrite, in, in uh, the western counties, uh, uh, banks are still expecting the owners of those properties to pay the mortgages in full, mm. despite the fact that those homes have literally no value. Um, and there has a been a, a long-standing view of the homeowners that the banks should be contributors to these schemes because ultimately they're beneficiaries. So if you think about it, um, if, if the government does move towards 100% redress uh, and the taxpayer is funding the remediation of these homes, the banks are profiting enormously because they're assets, because they currently own a lot of those properties. Uh, the value of those assets are being fully restored. So I think that's to dodge the bullet, though. I get where you're coming from, but that's to dodge the bullet. Why should I pay for somebody's home, for the redress of somebody's home in Donegal or Dublin or anywhere, um, when the builder has actually built a defective building? It's I, as the taxpayer, should not be picking up the cost of that. 
the banks or the builders or somebody, but it's my tax ultimately that rewards these shoddy builders. I I have a very strong view, and I make the case for this in the book, that there there are two groups of people who have responsibility here. In the first instance, it's the builders, it's the developers, uh, mm-hmm. and it's the material suppliers, whether the quarries or block manufacturers. And in the first instance, they are the people who should be made to pay. But the state also has a responsibility because the state put in place, politicians voted for uh, a particular kind of building control regime that was light touch and allowed people uh, to circumvent the rules. Uh, and they did that against the warnings, as I said earlier in the interview, of a whole range of people. So unfortunately, the state can't say it doesn't have some responsibility in all of this. One of the tragedies of, of Phil Hogan's reforms is initially in, in 2012-2013, he did intend to place a levy on the construction industry, the quarry industry, and the non-life insurance industry, because of course, uh, they're all uh, part and parcel of, of the latent defect story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and initially, he thought he was going to get an annual contribution of $15 million from those three sectors. But the non-life insurance industry threatened to take the minister to the European court um, uh, if he proceeded to impose a levy. Uh, and the minister backed down. And as we know, with Pyrite and the foundation, the state then ended funding that to the tune of about 60 or 70 million euros at this stage. So, and has anybody all, reintroduced the, um, the option to, to charge that levy? He let it drop. He said, look, you know, they're going to take me to Europe. I'm nervous or whatever. Has any subsequent government decided that they'll pick up the... The no, reins no, and run with it? <clears throat> no, no. We, we, the Oireachtas Housing Committee in 2018 uh, published a report called Safest Houses, which was following a, a series of hearings uh, from uh, various sides to, I suppose, the latent defect scandal. And in that report, we recommended that the government set up a redress scheme. Uh, and one of the funding mechanisms for such a scheme would be an industry levy. I'm strongly of the view, particularly given the scale of what we now expect the cost both of remediating the defective block scandal in the western seaboard counties, but also the wider issues of, of defects in apartments and duplexes. The cost is going to be so great that the taxpayer cannot be expected to foot the full bill. Uh, industry has to be brought to the table either on a voluntary basis or through an imposed levy, uh, uh, because ultimately this entire mess over the decade or two of the county tiger is the responsibility both of industry and government uh, uh, and we need to make sure that everybody uh, uh, pays their fair share. Industry absolutely has to be brought to the table in the same way that the church was brought to the table over the sexual abuse scandals and um, this isn't something that people created themselves. Let me ask you about insurance though. Um, builders have insurance when they are building. What does that insurance cover? Does it not uh, is it not insurance that I mean we're all familiar with the idea of professional indemnity insurance so if you're a solicitor and you give your client bad advice your insurance actually covers you because presumably you gave the advice you know in in the best way that you could and based on the best knowledge and you weren't intending to mislead them in any way but there is an insurance that covers you against the advice that you give how come the builders didn't have an insurance policy in place that said in the event that this house doesn't do what it says on the tin our insurance will cover it for you, the purchaser. So first of all, uh, they do have such an insurance. It's, a, it's an industry-run uh, uh, insurance scheme called Home Bond. The problem is twofold, however. Um, first of all, in many cases, the defects we're talking about are discovered quite some years on, uh, and therefore they're outside uh, uh, the statute of, of limitations, usually about five to seven years. Sorry, explain oh. that to me, because I pay my insurance in real time, and the insurance so, so is example, to make sure that I produce a good building. Now, it takes a few years to realise that I haven't produced a good building, but I should still be insured, surely. The, the insurance should still cover it. That's what I paid my money for. 
So one yeah. of the, the defects cases that I deal with in the book is, is Kira Holland and Galpin Green. Um, and Kira bought the height of the Celtic Tiger. She bought uh, a, a very expensive but very, very beautiful property in, in Stillorgan. Um, but the defects were only discovered in 2018, 2019, many years after the purchase. Uh, now, the builder um, uh, who was uh, responsible for, for the development is still trading, uh, uh, is a very, very well-known developer. Um, and when Kira at the uh, emergency uh, uh, general meeting of owners where they've been told about the defects, uh, when she asked the question, what about the builder? Mm-hmm. Uh, she was told that uh, the warranty on the property uh, uh, only lasted seven years and the defects were dis- discovered 10 years plus after they were found. Uh, and therefore, uh, the developer had no responsibility whatsoever. Um, so the first thing is, is there is a limitation of time. And if the defects aren't discovered within that period, uh, then um, uh, unfortunately, nothing can be done. So the actually, if she... her defects had been found earlier, sorry, just to, to be clear. So if they had appeared after a five year gap, she would actually have been covered and the builder through their well, insurance company would have been required to make it right. This, this, is, this is where it gets more problematic. So there are two other problems. Uh, uh, the second problem is, is some aspects of defense aren't actually covered uh, in the, uh, uh, the insurance. So when pyrite was found in the foundations uh, of uh, buildings, uh, there was a series of court cases. Uh, and ultimately, those court cases found that home bond uh, wasn't liable for uh, uh, funding the remediation of those properties. Uh, and therefore, there has been the second problem. But the third problem. But in sorry, in Kira's case, would her um, her problems have been covered? Had it been discovered in five years? Because hers wasn't a pyrite problem. We, we 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 don't know, of course, because that that wasn't what happened. Um, but what we do know is is in any of the defects cases that we've been dealing with, um, and there's about ninety uh, residential developments across the state that would have similar defects to the kind uh, that uh, Kira Holland had in Galloping Green. In none of those cases has home bond being of any use uh, to the owners. In all instances, uh, they uh, uh, um, have to the, the homeowners have to remediate the property themselves. In Kira's case, it was about seventeen or eighteen thousand euros she had to pay uh, herself and her partner. So the but warranty third... that they're allowed to put in place is not worth the papers written on. When it comes to structural defects such as uh, fire stopping, water ingress, or defective materials, that's exactly the case. But there's a third problem, and this is really important, and this was identified by the Law Reform Commission's report in 1977. There's a widespread practice that has been used uh, for for many decades, where when a developer is building a development, they set up um, a a designated activities company, what we used to call a company limited by guarantee, just for that residential development. That is the legal entity that is responsible for that development. But when that development is finished, uh, uh, they either close that uh, DAC down or if there are cases of defects, the DAC is liquidated. And therefore, legally, there is nobody to go after. Um, the and they can, scot-free, go off and set up another designated activity company for in, their next building site? In, in fact, some of the, the most profitable uh, uh, post-Celtic Tiger uh, developers uh, were responsible for some of the most significant latent defects uh, during the Celtic Tiger. And what they did was they liquidated the old companies, they created new companies, and not only are they free to build again, but in fact today many of these companies are receiving significant grants from the state and, and from the taxpayer through a variety of infrastructural funds uh, or through funding from now. It actually explains how some of the people we thought would have gone under completely 
um, in, yeah. in terms of, of building and liabilities and whatever came back. But without, <clears throat> sorry, without it going down that route, tell me why the state, uh, which is now going to have to pay for all these defects, would be dumb enough to continue to work with builders that they know produce shoddy work. Because you wouldn't do it if you were an individual business. It's, it's, it's a good question. Um, and, and the difficulty, of course, is is that uh, uh, it's a question that only this, the, the, the government parties can answer. Or no, it's a question for everybody in the Dáil. Like NAMA. Why has, why is, has no one in the Dáil said, excuse me, these people are getting tax rebates, they're getting all kinds of grant aid, we should stop immediately. Because if you were a business, all, you wouldn't do, do business with them on. First of all, many people in the Dáil have said that. In fact, uh, I've produced a piece of legislation that would prevent a developer from even getting planning permission uh, if they had a proven history of, of defective building uh, and they would not be able to secure future planning permissions until they had addressed and remediated uh, those problems. And you got support for that, I presume, through the Housing Committee or whatever, so you had a team so, behind you. So, so the legislation hasn't been introduced yet, but we've, we've completed it. But likewise, the Safest Houses report, which was supported by all political parties and independents in the Rockford Housing Committee, raised precisely all of these issues. I mean, there's a very long list of legal reforms that are required, and we detailed them all in that report. It's, it's amazing, just, I suppose, because home is so close to all of our hearts, it's an area exactly. that just makes you furious. Um, when you look at all the loopholes and all the ways that people can just disappear down rabbit holes, and leave you, well, the, the, the poor the sucker they, who's working for a living, has a mortgage for 20 years, completely screwed. And they just move the on issue, to the next thing. Is, is they don't disappear. They're still there in plain sight. Uh, and in fact, Kira Holland uh, was so infuriated uh, by what she felt was the injustice uh, of her and the other homeowners having to pay that very, very significant remediation cost while uh, the developer in her case was, was still securing planning permission. That she protested outside the courts uh, uh, when there was a, a legal challenge to the planning commission for that developer, uh, because she felt these people shouldn't be allowed to operate until they fix the, the, the defects that they had been responsible for. I think that's a great note to close on. A feisty woman who said, "I will take the argument to you in the front steps of the court." Owen O'Brien TD, your book is "Defects: Living with the Legacy of the Celtic Tiger." Um, I will look forward to talking to you again when we have hopefully some good news on this issue. For now, thank you for a fascinating insight into that topic. Thank you very much, Ellen. Well, now, that's all I have for you for this week. If you have information you'd like to share with listeners or you have a good story to tell, please send me an email to mediascope at dublincityfm.ie. And don't forget, you can hear podcasts of this and previous Mediascope programmes on www.globalinstituteforpr.com. I'm Ellen Gunning. Sound this week was by Fergal Daly. My thanks to Ono Brin TD and thanks to you for being with me today. I look forward to the pleasure of your company at the same time next week. So until then... Goodbye.